This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 74 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Graydon Hazenberg. In 1998, Graydon, his twin sisters, and a friend rode bicycles for nearly four months from Islamabad to Mount Kailash in Tibet. He wrote about his adventures in his new travel log, Pedaling to Kailash. Now, Graydon's book is special not just because of the challenging nature of his adventure, but because he, as you'll hear him mention, embarked on a different type of challenge in self-publishing the book after nearly 25 years. We also talk about what traveling to Tibet was like in the late 1990s, how plotting waypoints on maps helped him reconstruct the journey and ultimately write the book, and his path to self-publishing. Anyway, before we start the episode today, just a note to say that a lot of work goes into the free podcast. So please tell your friends about the show, leave a review on the Apple Podcasting app or whichever podcasting app you use, or support the show with only a few dollars, pounds, or euro a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Also, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, consider signing up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. A new roundup goes out at the first of the month. So now, here is Graydon Hazenberg. Well, Graydon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So back in the late 1990s, you and your twin sisters and a friend, um, collectively known as the Extreme Dorks, r- rode bicycles from Islamabad to Mount Kailash in, in Tibet. And you wrote about this cycling adventure in your book, Pedaling to Kailash. So I was wondering if you can just start off by you know, telling us a little bit about your journey. So I wanted to do a travel adventure with my sisters. We'd all done a lot of adventurous travel over the years, but never all together. And we all liked bicycles and mountains. And I had just been in Pakistan the year before, and I thought it looked like a good place to do a bicycle trip. And then tagging on this additional leg to get to Mount Kailash would make it a really epic adventure. And it just, it all came together, the opportunity and the desire to do it. And so we, we set aside a great chunk of time and went off and, and did, the, did this bike trip. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you and your sisters wanted to do this. I mean, is this an adventurous kind of background? Is that something that you had as a, as a child or where did that kind of inspiration come, that bolt? Where did that come from? Well, I mean, my, my parents did take us to some interesting destinations traveling. And for two years, when I was 12 years old, we went to Tanzania in East Africa. My father was teaching there. 
And so that for a kid growing up in Thunder Bay, Ontario was unbelievably exotic. And I think that gave all of us a big uh, impetus to want to do more traveling as we grew up. And then we all went to university in different places, but we all sort of gravitated to outdoors activities and, uh, and we wanted to go to remote places. I think that Africa really opened our eyes as to what a big and wide and interesting world it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in, in your adventure, it seems like the, the challenge was a, a double challenge in the sense that it was so off, so far off the beat, beaten path, as they say. But also you're adding this element of, of cycling over the Himalayas, <laughs> cycling over, <laughs> over rough terrain. So like, wh- where did that element of uh, the adventure take, take hold? Well, I mean, I think that we all, we were all a little unprepared for how difficult <laughs> it was going to be. We'd all done bicycle trips, but most of that was on nice paved roads in North America and Europe. And so we thought, oh, well, you know, the, the mountains will be higher, but that's the only <laughs> real difference. But in fact, it was much more difficult. There was the roads were terrible. Our bicycles broke down a lot. We got ill um, quite often. Uh, there were political problems and police problems, and uh, there was not enough to eat. And so, and we went very slowly. So this timeline that we sort of planned out turned out to be wildly optimistic and so it was quite difficult and part of that was because we just weren't mentally prepared for what was coming up mm-hmm. yeah, so why why then mount kailash as the as the end of your your journey was there something special about that landmark did you really want i mean i Obviously, there's that well, kind of famous pilgrimage around it. I mean, are, are you guys uh, Buddhist, Bonpo? Like, why there? <laughs> well, I mean, none of us are particularly religious, but I think that if you spend time in the Himalayas, you can. And I had been in Nepal and in Pakistan, and one of my sisters as well. And you can't help but be impressed by the religious devotion of. Buddhist pilgrims that that you see. Um, And I think that the fact that Kailash is so sacred to, you know, three or four different religions Mm -hmm. and is very difficult to get to. um, And it has, you know, it is so remote that it's kind of sits above everything else. It seemed like a very good place to go for, both the challenge of reaching it and also for the sacredness of the the place. And in fact, I had read a couple of books about Mount Kailash the year before while I was in the Himalayas, and it really fired up my imagination as a place I wanted to see. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what those books were? There was a book called A Mountain in Tibet by Charles Allen. Mm -hmm. And I read that, and there was. It's also mentioned in, I think, Peter Hopkirk's book, um, "Trespassers on the Roof of the World." And between those two books, I they they talk a fair bit about Kailash, and I thought, "Hmm, this is a place that I really want to see." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to 
kind of piggyback on on the title of that last book, Trespassers, uh, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> t- Tibet has pretty uh, strict entry requirements, um, and yet you and your team were able to to kind of get through. Can you explain like uh, the difficulties entering the region back in the late '90s and how you managed to to slip in? So Tibet has always been difficult to get into. I mean, in the in the late 1800s, uh, Westerners were trying to sneak into Tibet, and the Tibetan government really didn't want it to happen. In the 1990s, when we were there, you could enter China, not a problem. You could enter Tibet, but they wanted the Chinese authorities wanted you to have a guide and to follow sort of a set itinerary, and sort of they wanted to be able to keep an eye on you, but. If you had your own transport, like a bicycle, there were only a handful of places where there were checkpoints. And if you knew where those checkpoints were and you evaded them by going past them at two or three in the morning, then once you were past there, nobody really cared that much. And so we had a couple of sort of hairy moments getting onto the road to Tibet uh, that were kind of nerve wracking. And we were chased at one point and warned by a, a Chinese police official not to go to Tibet. But once we were past that, we were pretty much okay. But it was, you know, it, it wasn't something that the Chinese authorities wanted us to do. It wasn't like it was highly illegal. It was sort of a game almost that Western travelers and the Chinese police were involved with at the time. And nowadays, in the last 10 or 15 years has become much, much more difficult. They really do enforce the rules much more strictly. But So we were lucky that we went when we went, I think. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember um, from the late 90s, uh, there, were, there was a um, kind of growing interest in, in, uh, free, in, in the Free Tibet movement, uh, if, if you recall. Um, yeah. And, and so you would... One would have to imagine that that would, um, I, I guess, provoke some more security on on behalf of the Chinese because of the growing international outcry and and attention. So I wonder, you know, I imagine it was fairly uh, dicey or nerve wracking to 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 do something like this during that time. Well, there were certainly a couple of times where we really thought, mm, should we be doing this? Should we turn around and try a different route? Um, what happens if we really properly get arrested and deported? But, I mean, we weren't physically afraid. And I think that part of, you know, the challenge of going to some place that's difficult to get to is its own it has its own appeal. And I didn't feel like we were doing something inherently bad or immoral. In fact, I thought that seeing Tibet uh, was probably you know, good for the Tibetan cause, which I think all of us really supported more than we supported the, the Chinese view of, of, of Tibet and, and the situation there. It's hmm. interesting. And you also, in your route, you... Um go up from Islamabad and you go kind of to Northwest China, and then you kind of dip down into Tibet from the Kunlun mountains. And of course, this part of the world is getting a lot of 
attention for different reasons, but I, I'm just curious. Um, and, and you do mention this, I think, in the in the in the afterword of your book. But I, I'm just curious in the late '90s if there was any sense of um, any foresight or any sense of what would be happening there in, in that region. Well, it's, I mean, Tibet had been very badly repressed from the late 50s to the late 1980s. And Xinjiang had had that in the past. But at the time we were there, it was definitely much more relaxed and less tense in Xinjiang than it was in Tibet. Um, and there weren't actually that many Chinese settled in a lot of places like Kashgar. Mm-hmm. I've been back to Kashgar, the big city in the southwest corner of Xinjiang, since then. And you know now it's there are far more ethnic Chinese than there are Uyghurs, whereas when we were there, it was very much a Uyghur city. And so the, the change over the last 20 years has been enormous. And I think that's driven a lot of the tensions. Mm. Whereas when we were there, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it was all peace and love, but it was certainly far less repressed and repressive than it is now. It seems it's that, much easier to travel there. Mm-hmm. And it seems that that demographic trend with the Han Chinese is also happening in the you know, Tibetan uh, region. Oh, very much so. Very much so. And I mean, it's, it's the classic way that any sort of, of settler, big country with lots of people tries to quell a rest of areas by flooding the zone with lots of their own people. I mean, it happened in North America, in Argentina, in Australia. It's the same sort of thing. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, so you'd mentioned earlier that, um, you know, you didn't expect the trip to go as slowly as it did. I guess your your timeline had some issues. So let, let's talk about that. Like, how long did the the trip from Islamabad to Kailash take? It took us in the end about three and a half months in total. Okay. Um, and we weren't going flat out just cycling. In fact, the first half of the trip, we probably spent as much time hiking as we did cycling. Um, but right from the beginning, we were when we were cycling, it was definitely taking longer than we had kind of guesstimated when we planned the trip. So people um, today might be thinking about doing some type of trip like this. And one of the the questions that or concerns that immediately come to mind is is finance, right? Like the finances of the trip. Um, yeah. So like a trip that potentially could could take many months more than the expected time um, seems like it would be expensive. So just wondering, like the financial aspect for for you back in the 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 late nineties, like <laughs> you appeared on Jeopardy and you won, you won. Um, <laughs> But you're also a bit of a nomadic educator. You travel and, and, and you teach. And I was just wondering if any of these kind of sources, um, if any of these were sources of, of finances for you during your trip. Well, by the time this trip happened, the Jeopardy money had been spent on <laughs> lots of previous trips. But I had spent a year teaching English in Japan and made a reasonable amount of money. And so 
the savings from that were a large part of what I had for this trip. But the thing about it is that with a bicycle trip like this, if you're camping a lot, which we were, uh, and traveling in countries where cheap indoor accommodation is pretty inexpensive, the big expense is getting the airplane ticket. Mm -hmm. And once we bought flights to Pakistan, then really our day-to-day expenses were really quite low, particularly when we were on the second part of the trip going from Kashgar to Mount Kailash. We never slept indoors. Um, We bought food when we could. We would gladly have spent more money on food had there been more food to eat. But really, I mean, our day-to-day expenses might have been 5 or $10 a person maximally. And so staying extra time on the trip wasn't really a big expense. It was more the fact that we all eventually had other things that we needed to do. And so I had to get back to Europe to, to resume a job as a bicycle guide. And that was really pressing on, on us towards the end of the trip. The fact that I knew I had to be in Europe on a certain date. Mm -hmm. And and, and indeed you went South to, Kathmandu, whereas the rest of your crew had east, headed east to Lhasa. Yeah, and yeah. for me, I mean, I was it was kind of devastating because I really wanted to see Lhasa after all that effort to get to Tibet, <laughs> and yet I'd run out of time, and so I had to race off as quickly as I could. And so I was very glad that a few years later I managed to reach Tibet on a bicycle or Lhasa on a bicycle, coming from another direction. I felt like that finished some of the unfinished business of this trip. Okay. Yeah. I think I want to ask you about that uh, in, in a bit, but I guess while we're on this um, kind of topic, let's shift gears a little bit. <laughs> Sorry for the pun. Um, shift gears a little <laughs> bit and, and, and talk about, um, I, I guess, you know, the, the, the perspective of writing this book after what, 20 odd years. So 23, yeah, almost 23 years now. Yeah. So from what I, gather you wrote the first draft draft of this book um just a few, few years after the trip itself so back in the early 2000s um the the first iteration of this book was written um but i think you put it down and so i'm just curious like what compelled you to, to kind of dust off the manuscript and continue writing and and eventually uh self publish this book well what happened i i had always wanted to write a book about the trip and the thing was that after this, after the Tibet trip, I did a lot of traveling over the next few years. And it was a while before I, a couple of years before I really had the opportunity to sit down and, and write. And so over the course of 2002, I, so four years after the, the initial bicycle ride, I, I wrote a first draft and I thought it was pretty good. And then I thought, oh, so now I just need to, write to a few publishers and get it published. And it turned out to be a little more complicated than that. <laughs> and so I spent a lot of time, several years, sending off letters and manuscripts and emails to publishers and agents. And in the end, nobody really wanted to publish it. And so by about 2006, I thought, I give up. I'm, this just isn't going to get published. And I kind of metaphorically put it in a drawer and forgot about it a bit. And I was doing other bicycle trips. I wrote the manuscript for another book 
uh, based on another long bicycle trip along the Silk Road. And then the same thing happened. It was quite difficult to find a publisher and to find an agent. And then when COVID struck, and I was supposed to have been traveling, and instead I was unexpectedly stuck not traveling. I thought I should make constructive use of the time. And so I took the first book and completely rewrote the manuscript and I think made it better. And then thought that now that self-publishing is so much easier than it once was with platforms like Kindle Direct Publishing, I thought I should self-publish it and just see if I can get it out there into the world. And maybe it'll sell well, maybe it won't sell well, I thought, but at least it would get my name out there. And then perhaps the second book, the Silk Road book, perhaps uh, a publisher or an agent might be more interested in it, having seen that the first book was pretty good. Mm-hmm. So it was really COVID that forced <laughs> me to sit down and, and get it done. Right. And that was, that was the way that that worked. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, there there are examples and um, you know instances where people uh, writers self publish their first book, which, as you as you mentioned here, kind of draw attention to you know future f- to them as writers and helps them essentially get published uh, traditionally after that. So there, you know, that does happen uh, quite quite often. But I want to just circle back here and impress you. You said you were querying agents until about 2006 but none of the agents really wanted to take on the book and i was just wondering if you 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 got any sense from them why why not well to be honest i never got a whole lot of feedback um i mean i got my share of rejection letters but mostly i was just met with deafening silence and i don't know i mean i think the book is pretty good and most of the people who have read it have been fairly positive about it. So I don't think that it was the case that the book itself was you know, terrible and full of errors and unreadable. But I do think that being unknown and not having previous works to show uh, makes a publisher or an agent less likely to want to take a chance on you. And also, I think that bicycle trips, bicycle travel stories. They're, they're very niche, right? There aren't that many writers. You can think of someone like Dervla Murphy or uh, Josie Dew or Alistair Humphreys, but there's not a huge section on bicycle travel in your, in your travel section at the bookstore. And so I think the combination of me being unknown and bicycle travel being kind of on the fringe of travel writing made people reluctant to take a chance. Right. Yeah, it's so hard um, to to remember back in the late 90s and kind of think of what the publishing landscape was like in, in terms of, you know, the interest of the book. Like, I can't do that offhand. Uh, but increasingly now, uh, you know, in the 2020s, you know, book proposals and agents want to have in the in the proposals themselves, like very well articulated, marketing plan so that it seems like the 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 book proposal is like kind of like a business plan and you know it illustrates or articulates the business uh 
I guess the the business function of the book. It's weird to think about you know art and literature in, in these monetary terms, but um, that's kind of what's driving many of these you know many of these um, deals uh, for for better or worse. Oh, absolutely, and I think that a lot of people who do get book deals are people who have some sort of public persona, and perhaps not for writing, but for other things, for sports or celebrity or mm-hmm. uh, being in entertainment. And hence, they're known. They're a known quantity. It's a name that can attract attention on the marketplace. And so if you're not like that, I think it can be quite hard. And I think that a lot of it is chance as well. If you happen right. to query uh, a publisher or an agent on one given day, they might, you know, they might have had a good lunch and they've uh, they've just signed a nice deal and they think, hey, I'd like to take a chance on somebody. But you query them the next week and business isn't as good and I don't know, they didn't sleep well the night before and they're less interested. And so there's nothing you can do to control that as as an author. And you just have to hope that if you keep plugging away, someone will eventually pay attention. But in my case, that that didn't happen or hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many people, uh, many critics tend to, I, I don't know, mythologize the, the author, right, as, you know, this uh, genius figure. But, you know, genius is... Uh, or sorry, book publishing often uh, relies on luck and chance and and uh, serendipity, uh, and that's not really discussed so much uh, because it shatters the, <laughs> the, the aura <laughs> the aura of the genius author. But you know, luck has, as you mentioned, uh, a lot to do with it. Um, but your your website uh, has these kind of great Google Maps of you know the waypoints of your your cycling trip and not just the one for the book for, for other trips that you've taken. And, you know, anyone who goes to your website can see that you've <laughs> traveled around quite a bit. Um, now, but so your book was, your book documents a trip that you took back in the late nineties. So obviously you wouldn't have had Google maps back then. Um, so how, how were you able to reconstruct the waypoints so precisely so long after your trip? I mean, did you like triangulate, journal entries or something like how how did that work? Well, I've always kept pretty meticulous journals when I've been traveling. I mean, I'm terrible at keeping journals when I'm just working and doing the same thing day after day. But when I'm on the road, I keep pretty good journals and particularly cycling. I like to know how far I've gone and, and where I am. And so I tried always to say how far I'd gone that day. And later on, not on this trip, but on other trips, things like elevations but, you know, a lot of these roads, they had and still have uh, kilometer markers on them. And so I would record, oh, we camped somewhere around kilometer 485. And then I can some often just by measuring stuff on maps or by looking at, uh, at landmarks, I say, oh, you know, we camped 10 kilometers after crossing a certain river. I can look that up on the map and go, okay, so that means it was pretty close to here. And so most of it I've been able to reconstruct pretty well. There's been a couple where I've really had to guess, but I I know somewhere within some 10-kilometer radius must have been where we camped. And, you know, sometimes I put it to satellite view and 
zoom in and say, oh, okay, there's, there's a mountain, there's that lake. And, you know, I have some photographs. I can look at the photo and say, okay, so judging by the photo and, and what I see on Google Earth on the satellite view, it must be somewhere near here. And so I think I've been able to do a pretty good job of that. Before we started recording, uh, you'd mentioned that uh, COVID kind of dashed your plans to go to Africa. And I was just curious to know, like now on mo- more recent traveling kind of expeditions or, or adventures that you're, you're taking, does your pro- process of, of recording waypoints, is that different than it was back in night? Or are you still doing the same thing, like journaling and that's it, low tech? I try to be as low tech as possible because if you're traveling and camping a lot without access to uh, reliable electricity every night, it means you can't have things that are really power hungry, like GPSs, say, or mobile phones, uh, or, and really rely on them. So a lot of it is just sort of distance on a cycling computer. Um, I mean, I use a mobile phone much more than I once did, but I try not to rely on it because. I know that I might go a week without plugging something into a wall. And so I need to, if it's going to be something I rely on, it has to be something reasonably low tech. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Coming back to this um, plotting uh, waypoints on the map, like I'm sure, you know, you've you've had this experience, but uh, you know, I can, I can, um, can, I can imagine that, you know, revisiting these points on the map or just, by doing the research of trying to figure out where you were, um, that might stir up half-forgotten memories. Um, it might help kind of just bring back the sense of place of traveling kind of back into your fore. So like, I, I guess I'm, I'm fumbling through this question, but the, the question is like, were you consulting this map as you were writing the book? And, and did that help you with kind of remembering or like absolutely. what did that process look like? Yeah, absolutely. Making the map, which I did before I sort of went through and rewrote the original manuscript, making the map really helped because what I find is over time, even though I like to think I have a good memory, you know, I don't always remember things in the right order. And so I'll think, oh, we did, we, we camped in this place the day before we saw this lake. And then I'll read my diary or, or look at the, the map and think, no, actually, it happened in the opposite order. And I've misremembered mm. it all these years. And so I think that it really helped me reconstruct the journey as precisely as I could um, and corrected a lot of errors that have just sneaked in over the years. Like it, 23 years is a long time to, <laughs> to remember every last thing that happened. And I also found that my my sisters and their partners they all read the manuscripts as i was rewriting it and they pointed out a few things where they said i'm pretty sure it happened this way and i thought about it yeah you're right actually and so it was good to have to triangulate off their memories as well but it's a good way of, of reminding myself how fallible memory can be right yeah and and some of the forensic <laughs> crime shows uh, that deal with, <laughs> with with memory they often you, you know pinpoint this, this very thing that you're 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 talking about here and that 
we remember things sometimes in, in reverse. So when we're recounting a memory, they say this happened, A happened, B happened, and C happened. Um, but forensically, they determined that it had to have happened in the opposite direction. But something about the memory and the process of remembering uh, kind of inverts the order of things in a very strange way. And it's interesting that you experience the same uh, on your on your longer trip. Yeah. But I mean, I remember I listened recently to the podcast that you did about Patrick Lee Fermer's uh, book about walking across Europe and how he wrote it 40 years after, after the journey that it described. And he had lost almost all of the notebooks from that journey. And it made it very hard for him to do things perfectly accurately, but at the same time, it sort of freed him up to be a bit more creative about the memories. Whereas for me, I really did want to try to tell it the way it happened. I didn't want to have, have a story that was only tangential to what really happened. I, I wanted to try to capture as accurately as I could and as artistically as I could the, the journey. And so the maps and the journals made a huge difference for that. They really nailed stuff down and kept me from making mistakes. Yeah. I can imagine it helps uh, ground, uh, ground the narrative or the, the structure of the book in some way. You'd, you'd mentioned yeah. earlier that um, you went on another trip. And in fact, your book ends with a, li- a little teaser of sorts uh, for, th- for that adventure. Can you tell us about um, what, what's, what's next for you, this other, other project that you're working on? So a few years after the, the Tibet trip in 2002, I set off to cycle the length of the Silk Road. I started in Xi'an, the old capital of China, where the Terracotta Army was found. And I was going to cycle back to Europe in one long trip. And it ended up taking longer than that. Uh, The first (laughs) attempt, I got quite sick and had to abandon the trip in Western China. And then two years later, I came back and cycled from Western China to Iran. But I ran out of time. I had to go work. And so it took five years before the stars aligned and I was able to return to Iran and finish the trip and bicycle to the Mediterranean. And so it was a much longer trip. And it was different from the pedaling to Kailash story in that I did almost all of it on my own. And a solo trip, writing about a solo trip, is very, very different from writing about something in which you're doing stuff with other people as part of a group. Um, And I tried, I mean, what I was very interested in with the Silk Road book was the history and the culture of the places along the way. And so there's perhaps more in the way of history and culture than there is in pedaling to Kailash. Although I did put in a a reasonable amount of historical and cultural stuff Mm -hmm. in pedaling to Kailash, but, there was more about the the misadventures that we got into with the bicycles and food and illness. Mm-hmm. In terms of distance, that the 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 second trip seems. I know you did it in stages, but that is definitely a longer a longer ride uh, than the one in pedaling to Kailash. And you know, from the perspective of riding, I mean, pedaling to Kailash. I have it here. It's it's a pretty beefy book. I mean, there are four hundred something pages in it, and so I'm just curious. You know, from 
from writing in, in writing this new book, like where, what lessons did you learn in terms of of of, of writing and narrative and and, and pacing? Um, what what lessons did you learn from writing that book that you're going to apply to this new one? Is it is it going to be kind of beefy? Like, what does that look like? It's it's going to be a little bit longer, but not enormously longer. Uh-huh. And so there were there's a lot of sections of the Silk Road book where I I skip over sections and say, you know, over the next week I rode from point A to point B mm. because the the events that happened or what I saw didn't really advance the narrative that much. So I learned to become a little more episodic. Um and to focus on certain places that made a big impression or where the, the history of the culture was particularly uh, important. Um, and I also, because I was traveling on my own, there's less dialogue. But when there was dialogue, when, there, when I did interact with people, I tried to, to make that a bigger part of the book. Because I think that very often the interactions that you have while traveling are what let you see more deeply into a culture or to understand a little bit better what's going on rather than just what you've read in a book or what you see as you pedal past. Mm-hmm. So I tried to, if, if I had a, a really good conversation with somebody somewhere, I tried to make that kind of a cornerstone of that little section of the book. Mm-hmm. Two uh, two good tips. One, you know, the the experience of, of travel uh, deepens when 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 you interact with other people. And secondly, you know, resisting the urge to to document every single thing, uh, I, I think is, <laughs> <laughs> is is a good uh, is a good tip in in, in travel literature. So, oh, good. Yeah, well, there's certainly something I'm still trying to work on for sure. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, I think you nailed it when when you talked about kind of the episodic nature of of uh, narrative i mean that could you know writers could use that um to 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 great effect in terms of pacing and and uh, keeping the narrative flowing um great uh, great and thanks for coming on the podcast can you tell us where we can find you online the best place to find me to start is my website gradenhazenberg.ca and you can find me on facebook in Hazenberg and uh, Instagram at HM Stanley's Travels. Uh, and that's probably the best place to, to look for me or search for my book on Amazon. Great. Well, we'll put all those links in the show notes. Thanks. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you very, very much for having me, Jeremy. It's been a great pleasure. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.